Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of DPS. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about an exciting new policy platform put out by the Bernie Sanders campaign just last week. It's called the Workplace Democracy Plan, and it is one of the most ambitious and radical plans to ever strike the labor movement, perhaps since the 1930s. We'll leave that as an open question. My guest today is Paul Prescott. He's going to speak to these matters. He is a Philadelphia educator. He's a member of the Caucus of Working Educators there in Philadelphia, uh, reminiscent of the Moore Caucus in New York City, the Core Caucus in Chicago, and the Radical Caucus uh, that just went on strike out in Oakland as well. So he's carrying on that legacy of fighting radical socialist trade unionist educators. He's also on the steering union of the National DSA Labor Committee. Paul Prescott, thanks for coming on DPS. Thanks for having me. So Bernie's workplace democracy plan is one of the most radical sets of policy, uh, legislative plans, what have you, to ever be introduced by a, a serious contender for the office of the presidency of the United States. Talk to us a little bit about what is included in that plan. It's going to roll back a number of provisions introduced in 1947-48 in the Taft-Hartley Act, which mm-hmm. – really, really uh, set back unions uh, many generations in terms of expelling some of the most radical and effective organizers in the Red Scare and so on and so forth. Talk to us a little bit about what this workplace democracy plan could accomplish in this moment. Yeah. And it's the type of thing where there's so many good things. I get so excited. It's hard to even know where to even start. But um, one of the biggest things, and this kind of flies you know, maybe for mainstream audiences under the radar. But um, I think one of the biggest things the labor movement needs to figure out is this whole concept of an independent contractor. And companies have been using this to get around unions, getting around basic labor protections for a while now. Um, So one thing it does is, you know, ending the right of companies to classify employees as independent contractors. And of course, they do this. It's your supposed to be this idea that somehow you're like your own employer or in some way or somehow an entrepreneur, um, which of course is not true. I used to work as a substitute teacher and I was apparently an independent contractor through doing that. <laughs> so, it will, you know, get rid of that. It also, you know, in many European countries, they have um, sectoral collective bargaining. So that would mean, you know, in the steel industry, for example, you know, the patterns that they set would be for the entire industry. So that would include union and non-union workers. Um, so that would really, you know, raise the floor for workers all over the country. And I think it would also help to, you know, restore this image of unions as not just a special interest, not just a club that's fighting for their own members, but, you know, they're really helping to raise up everyone in society. It covers the union election. So, I mean, just in general, the United States has such bad labor law and it's, you know, so entirely stacked against workers. Um, you know, currently for union elections it is a pretty long and complicated process um, that the courts have to do to validate an election. And in the meantime, as he lays out, companies can go through all types of union busting and anti-union methods and, you know, fear mongering to get workers to sort of backtrack on that. You know, what he lays out is a very simple process that as soon as workers in a bargaining unit sign enough authorization cards, so once they sign the majority of cards, they'll have a union. And immediately afterwards, the company has 10 days to negotiate, um, start negotiating in good faith a contract. And again, it's really hard to overstate 
how huge this is yeah. for workers and unions. And I mean, one big thing many will tell you is that not only is it so hard to get a union, but once you do, it is extremely hard to get that first contract. Because again, companies will use every trick in the book to get around that. And then if you do not have a contract at a certain amount of time, they can decertify the union. And then you can imagine for workers, you know, what would be the point of the union if you don't have a contract yet? So it's more likely, you know, workers might opt out of wanting one. You mentioned uh, Taft-Hartley. I mean, one thing it does is ban the permanent replacement of striking workers, which has been another huge thing, huge barrier in the way of union growth. You know, most people like to think of neoliberalism being ushered in with Reagan firing the uh, PACO workers, the air traffic controllers in 1981, basically permanently replaced all of them. So this would get rid of that. And maybe the last thing I'll cover for now is even going back to many people talk about the New Deal and what it left out in terms of workers. Um, he does have a section in there about farm workers and domestic workers being covered equally by labor law and having the same rights to a union as everyone else. So it really is a comprehensive plan for labor. That's right. That's right. Among many other things that you uh, mentioned in addition to that, it's going to eliminate the right to work laws that were placed down in the Taft-Hartley right. Act, which enabled many states, uh, including my own here, home state of Virginia, to pass legislation to eliminate the ability of unions to collect those dues, uh, which you know effectively banished, uh, effectively banned in all practice. Let's be honest, uh, many unions from those states. Um, it's going to also take on, as you just as you rightly mentioned, in terms of union elections, it's going to. Um, it's really the Employee Free Choice Act on steroids, if you think about it. Right? I mean, this right. is the this is a piece of legislation that ushered Obama into office, past Hillary Clinton, perhaps even, where organized labor got behind Obama on that basis, thinking that he was going to be their savior and, and usher in this kind of relatively weak form of of you know um, election you know reform there to guarantee free and fair elections and establishment of unions like you just mentioned but this this piece of legislation goes much much further so uh, I've seen some numbers in terms of how much this this piece of legislation is supposed to increase the unionized labor force I can't remember off the top of my head do you remember some of the, the numbers that have been thrown around there in terms of percentage increase well and I think, I mean, Bernie's been kind of framing this as, you know, we want to double union membership in this country. And, um, you know, and of course, this was, you know, Bernie can't organize every single workplace by himself. So this is up to, you know, workers to take advantage of this opportunity. But I, you know, if, if this all were to pass, I think it would be very real realistic to say that we could double the union membership in this country. Yeah. Yeah. That's really exciting. I mean, you look back to the establishment of the NRL, uh, the National Labor Relations Act. In the early 1930s, and suddenly you have these union uh, organizers handing flyers and pamphlets to their fellow workers saying, you know, Roosevelt wants you to have a union, you know, come right. join us. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's a very different thing. It emboldens people when when the, the, the head of the executive, you know, is encouraging you to go do this and, and sign up and, and uh, organize against the bosses. Really, really exciting, exciting stuff. I know in my own context the uh the measure that allows secondary boycotts is probably the most exciting because the strike actions that I've been a part of where secondary boycotts would have been very very effective it just sort of makes you makes you wonder you know how how much more effective we could have been in those moments but secondary boycotts yeah. for example you know bus drivers uh, going to and from said workplace or building could also boycott service uh, serving those 
those areas or or what have you. For now, that's that's outlawed, and and they could they can and will be fired, or or even forced to work against their will, <laughs> which is uh, right. I think about it because I mean, what what a secondary boycott can do is really enhance this idea of working class people as a class acting for its own interests in a broad scale. And it's what I think, you know, the right wing and capital has been very clever at doing is really putting labor in this corner and then um, turning it back on labor says as an argument against it. And like, I mean, examples with teachers unions, you actually have in many places where they've set up laws where it's actually illegal to bargain for things like class size, for things that would benefit students and the broader community. And then they turn around and say, look how selfish and greedy the teachers are. And it's kind of the same thing with a secondary boycott. You know, by outlawing it, you're really kind of forcing unions to really only look out for their own members and their own maybe more narrow interests and then turn around and paint them as special interests. So, yeah, I mean, that that's one, again, probably, you know, today's world, people probably don't think about secondary boycotts because it's been so long since they were legal. But, um, you know, in terms of empowering the working class in general, that that's a key feature of the plan. Yeah, absolutely. No question. I've been on strike actions where if we could have, you know, had solidaristic action from the, the bus drivers, from cab right. drivers, from construction workers, it would have just been an absolute game changer. We would have shut down that workplace. Nobody would have come in or out. Um, and, and we would have been able to walk to the bargaining table and basically – uh, make our demands and uh, had had the boss, you know, really wrapped around our finger in that way. Um, but you can see how they've used the law to protect their relatively weak position in, in the process of allegedly free and fair bargaining. And, and this is going to go a very long way to try to turn that around. So we're going to talk a lot more about this as we go on. If, if, if you're look listeners, if you're not if you're not wetting yourself with excitement right now at the prospect of this this kind of legislation being offered in a serious way by by someone who is you know the leading contender right now in a leading national poll, the Emerson poll, which is not a large not not the greatest poll in the world, let's be honest, but it has Bernie neck and neck with Liz Warren, and Joe Biden continues to take a beating in these polls. Um, the, these national polls are typically, you know, it's it's an interesting marker. It's, it's something to sort of test the, the the waters, but it's really the ground game that matters. But oh yeah, that's right. Bernie Sanders has a ground game that's second to none. It's record breaking. So we're going to talk more about that as well. This piece of legislation also promises in its messaging to double the membership of unions, and it's being presented as a basically a, a giveaway to these unions. Like come and get it, you know, come on board. Endorse Sanders, get on board behind this workplace democracy plan, and and you will see your roles and your campaign coffers, you know, for for your for your uh, union double, you know, in, in a period of of only months. Now, is this going to work? Are they going to take the bait? We have seen one major endorsement, which was kind of expected by now, the United Electrical. Uh, you know, they, they uh, just recently endorsed at their national convention. Talk to us about that and some of the early other support that we might see coming down the pipeline. So, yeah, the UE did endorse yesterday. Um, it's very exciting. But also, I think, like you said, this is a little bit more expected. UE has a long history of being a left wing union. Um, they were actually hit really hard by McCarthyism. 
that kind of explains why they're a smaller union today. Um, they had also endorsed back in 2016. So about one thing that's kind of key about this and kind of can be seen on a broader scale too, is that um, some people I know in UE, they do talk about how a lot of rank and filers, you know, were either pro-Trump people or a combination of Trump and Bernie. And I bring that up because it kind of speaks to, again, the importance of having a candidate like Sanders who can counter the influence of Trump among, uh, you know, working people of all stripes. You know, I, I think I can imagine without Bernie running for many of those rank and filers who ended up supporting Sanders, they just would have supported Trump there. I don't think someone like Biden would have been a counterweight to that. And that kind of just there's there was an old um, CIO poster that I always bring up because it's so important. Um, I I forget exactly what it looked like, but essentially it's a worker. And on um, one side, there's a Ku Klux Klan member talking to him. And it says, if you don't talk to your coworkers, someone else. Yeah. will." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really the perfect, you know, and whenever I hear stuff about people on the left saying it's not my job to educate you or organize you. I'm just like, I mean, we might as well put people on a bus and send them to a Trump rally. But, you know, so I think that that's kind of one, you know, and, and uh, there was a recent strike by UE in Erie and which is kind of Erie, Erie, Pennsylvania, which is kind of considered by some as quote unquote Trump country. So it really speaks to the importance of unions mobilizing around Sanders to really counter that effect Trump is having. As far as some other early support, Another significant one was the um, Teamsters, Brotherhood and Maintenance and Way employees, um, their railway maintenance workers. They, for a long time, have been big uh, proponents of Medicare for All, um, and they have endorsed Sanders. And you have some small locals like uh, Meatpackers Local in um, Iowa, endorsed, and a Roofers Local in the West Coast also. But, um, you know, by and large, the unions have not taken a stand really on, on any candidate. And I could go into that now if you think I should. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's go ahead and jump in on that. We've got a lot else to talk about, but we'll be all over the place uh, for this interview. Um, what do you? I mean, in terms of the timeline, it's not surprising that we're not seeing a lot of endorsements yet. The the, the field of candidates has yet to thin out in a way. These national bureaucrats who run a lot of these major trade unions are are skittish to kind of hitch their wagon on one candidate when you know things might go another direction. Um, but right. kind of prognosticate for us a little bit. Give us some speculation. What do you think in terms of how do you see this playing out? What are the, some of the endorsements and some of the key pressure points that we should start working on uh, as some of my you know, trade union brothers and sisters and comrades out there uh, can, can, can start thinking about how they can you know, uh, activate in their locals uh, to, right. to, to persuade their own nationals in, in various directions? Yeah, I think one thing to point out Another factor of why I think unions are holding back a little bit, um, which is a positive one, is that back in 2015, 2016, most unions endorsed Hillary Clinton very quickly with no input from membership. You know, this was just supposed to be a done deal. Obviously, Hillary would be the nominee and she was supposed to win. And there was actually a lot of pushback within unions against that. One of the biggest ones was in my union, AFT, where Randy, Gard, Randy uh, Weingarten endorsed Hillary. I think they were the first union. There's a lot of rank and filers who were angry about that and the, the process. And obviously, it was kind of discrediting because Hillary wound up losing, obviously. So I think that is also a reason that this time around, you know, AFT has actually rolled out this process that is supposed to be, you know, so much more transparent and open, which I'm a little skeptical of. But at least, you know, they're being forced to kind of walk that back and hold 
you know, hold their fire for a little bit. So I think that plus the crowded field is why they're going to be holding out. You know, in terms of where, where we can look to, you know, so much of this is tied to the fate of Sanders' campaign overall. So he's a much more he's a much more credible candidate right now. You know, he's he's been he's been one of the front runners from the beginning. So the argument about him not being electable, you know, is less and less strong. You know, I think you can start by looking at who endorsed him back in 2016 among unions. So those were, um, you know, National Nurses United, the Postal Workers Union endorsed the Longshore Workers Union, Amalgamated Transit Workers Union, and um, Communication Workers of America, as well as UE had endorsed them last time. So, I mean, for members out there who are in those unions or have relationships with people in those unions, I think that that'd be a natural place where you know at least there might be sympathetic leadership and maybe a lot of sympathetic rank of filers that we could start talking about that process and really identifying who was involved last time, um, and, you know, what are, they, what are the plans this time around. But again, I don't think anything can be assumed, even with those unions that had endorsed. And some of them, such as CWA, had, um, you know, they did it by a membership vote, a referendum. And, you know, they, I think, could be planning for that again. And you also never know how a vote could turn out. So those are the unions that had endorsed the last time around. You know, it, it, it's kind of hard to, uh, you know, pick and choose, you know, which one necessarily have, have more of a shot. But you also can look at last time locally, which unions had more locals revolt against the national endorsement. And um, believe it or not, the IBEW, the other electricians union, they had among the most locals that actually endorsed Bernie against the wishes of the national union leadership. And I think this time around, and even with the talk about Green New Deal, which, you know, actually a lot of elect- electricians would benefit from, I think that's something to pay attention to about many locals um, warming up to Sanders even more. Yeah, yeah. The IBW, uh, some people have had some, the IBW has put out some conflicting statements about the Green New Deal, but it's clear that they've got their ear on the ground in terms of, you know, thinking about how this could benefit their workers and their sector, for sure. You know, the thing that strikes me as you're talking about this jockeying, and I know it's anecdotal, but a number of uh, friends and comrades and people that I'm connected to online are also running for their local um, in terms of, you know, whether it's the executive board or however they sort of run that. They're running for their local, um, you know, governance structure there in in their trade union. And um, that's exciting to see people, these kind of upsurges. You know, and, and this kind of grassroots throw the bums out, throw out the bureaucrats and have some real rank and file style democracy in these locals, which is really encouraging. I know there's been some uh, there's, there's some red scare uh, in full swing in New York City around some of their labor council activities, wherein some of the, the bosses are being challenged. And uh, and uh, so it's exciting to see this upsurge. And this is really like what I'm getting to here is this is the real genius of of Bernie Sanders approach here and his what he calls the political revolution. Because on the one hand, you might think to yourself like, ah, this is pie in the sky shit. Nobody's going to go for this, Paul. You know, come on. And 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 it's 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 definitely a lofty aim. There are there's a, there's a, a number of measures here that almost nobody ever probably even thought Bernie would would uh, would put forward. But what it does is it it's it produces yet another litmus test. And it produces right. another moment for people to say this is objectively good for us and our members. Which side are you on? Leadership. 
Which side are you on? Are you on the side of, 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 of the plan that promises to double our membership, to, to, to take all the constraints off of us, you know, that have prevented us from making advances over the past 35, 40 years? Or are you going to side with the bosses? Which side are you on? And that's, that's what I think this process, we're going to see this heating up in a big way over the coming year uh, at the national level and, and, the, and the, within the locals, too, in a way that I think right. is really exciting. Um, wh- what are some of the, what are, what's some of the discussion you're seeing at the local uh, level about this type of plan? Yeah. And, you know, you, you took the words like right out of my mouth because I, I was going to say exactly that, that it kind of calls the question, you know, who are we endorsing and why? And again, I mean, it, you could look at this proposal from a purely self-interested perspective and clearly unions would benefit. And it calls the question of, you know, why wouldn't we do this? And what makes this moment so exciting is this whole question of electability is really being thrown off. And for parts of the establishment, and I wouldn't go so far as to paint them as part of the establishment, but part of, of the union leadership they're also being thrown off because, again, if you really want to make this electability argument, seeing what Sanders has been doing, I mean, his basic poll numbers, but also how diverse his coalition is, how working class it is, the fundraising records, which he's been you know, breaking, the huge crowds he gets, you know, he really is looking like the actually most electable candidate. So that argument is being stripped really of a lot of its weight. And, you know, the more the support he's getting and even from places like in UTLA, for example, the Los Angeles Teachers Union, who came off a very successful strike uh, last fall, they they have not endorsed anyone yet. But it is very clear that they are extremely friendly to Bernie. He was invited to their um, leadership conference. Um, a lot of you know pictures were taken. Um, it's very clear like where they're leaning, and this is the kind of thing that exerts more pressure on AFT National to think about you know, considering this and that you, it's not just a few people somewhere in a local who are supporting Bernie. These are some of you, Los Angeles is the largest public school district in the country. So you have like one of the largest teacher union locals who are showing that they're pro Bernie. So it's really calling the question in that way. And, you know, this proposal coming out now just gives us more ammo to say, you know, not only looking at Bernie's past, but what he's proposing now gets at some of the problems that have been plaguing the labor movement for, you know, generations. Right on, right on. So this is going to be, you know, a really exciting uh, year ahead, I think, for the labor movement. And you are also a part of another body of, of activists uh, in the trade union movement, uh, somewhat overlapping DSA, uh, but also distinct from it, Labor for Bernie. And Labor for Bernie has been all over social media. Uh, talk about that coalition, who comprises it, and um, what, what's the promise there? Yeah, um, and to be clear, so Labor for Bernie, you know, it, it's separate from DSA. It's also separate from the official Sanders campaign. And, you know, it was started in 2015, 2016. And yeah, really the whole point of this is to get union support for Bernie Sanders' campaign, both in the primary and then hopefully in the general election. And, you know, I think there's, many different angles to this um you know on the one hand and this became big back in 2016 and since then um on the one hand it's actually purely about union democracy so you know we're pushing for Bernie sanders but we're also pushing for unions to say like you know we should have democratic debate in the locals of who we endorse um it should should be up to members um there should be organized discussion around this 
And, you know, really getting at this question of, you know, why are we rubber stamping any Democrat that comes along and, you know, giving them a lot of money and not getting anything back for it? You know, if you're going to have a transactional relationship, you should at least be getting something. And I think it's pretty clear for so long from Democrats, we haven't been. So that's kind of one angle is that democracy in these unions. The, the other angle is that, you know, we want rank and file activists to organize their co-workers around Bernie and his platform. And hopefully, you know, the dream is that you could push your local or national leadership, you know, to have a vote or for the leadership to endorse um, Bernie. And, you know, this is all kind of like an organizing tool. We have, you know, these Labor for Bernie pledge cards as you get support. And, you know, if you think about it, these co-workers of yours that would sign on for Bernie are also co-workers that you would have a much easier time organizing to a Medicare for All canvas, a Bernie canvas, um, maybe any other kind of political event going on. So I, I, I kind of look at it that way. It's also like building up more of a base of labor activists who you know have a, a certain brand of left politics that you know you can we can develop more. And then you know behind, I mean, the whole point of why Democratic candidates want union endorsements is the resources that they have. So you know, ideally again, both in the primary and the general election, you know, we want unions to be devoting significant resources, both in money and in, um, you know, volunteers on the ground to help get Sanders elected. And, you know, this is uh, really going to be key. I mean, Bernie has built up an incredible volunteer base. Um, and he's in a much better position than last time. But, um, you know, the resources that unions can offer are really valuable. And, you know, could be the turning point in certain areas. So we, we hope that as we get more unions to support Bernie, um, they, these resources can come into play um, and, and help them win key states. That's right. Talk to us a little bit about the transformation. I don't know, that might be too strong of a word, but the growth, let's say, of Labor for Bernie. As you mentioned, that organization has been around since 2015, 2016. Have, what kind of growth and development have you seen in that organization over the past, you know, three or four years? Um, what, what what will that what 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 does that signal in the coming election here? Yeah, and and you know, I personally was not yet in a union in 2016, I, so I wasn't as directly involved back then. But again, there were um, six major national union endorsements, you know, which is is very significant. Not as much as people would have liked, but. Considering, again, Sanders as considered to be this outlier candidate, um, that was substantial union support. And, you know, it, it's kind of a complicated group because, you know, every union and every union local is so different. So it's kind of not like we can just set this strategy out, broad strategy out and have everyone doing the same kind of thing. And also it was for a very specific task in 2016. So in the, in the um, intermediate years, it's been affiliated with Bernie's organization, Our Revolution. But I would say in the in intermediate years, um, it wasn't really active, you know, as Labor for Bernie necessarily. But the key thing is going into now 2020, we're drawing on the networks that we built back in 2016. And so the hope now, I think what you're seeing now is you have, you know, the same people from last time are around, but it's getting a lot of traction in new union, unions, at least at the rank and file level level you know so since last election with the teacher strike wave you know you have so many teachers some of them in leadership some of them not but so many teachers who are you know supporting bernie and really want to get involved and it also helps you know his thurgood marshall education plan has been a really good thing to organize teachers around 
we see we have a good core of people in the machinist union who are for Bernie this time around, and their national leadership has confirmed that they are going to be doing a Democratic vote for endorsement. Um, so that's kind of given people more energy to say, like, this is a real prospect in here that, you know, we could get enough members to vote for the machinists. So, you know, at this point, it is kind of, it is still, I would say, a loose network of activists. And it's, you know, still mostly done on an all volunteer basis. Um, so I think, I think we do have a much broader array of support at the rank and file level. It still is, I would say, pretty dispersed. And I think the union situation is more complicated this time around for the reasons we talked about. And, um, you know, there have been some unions that have hinted that they may not even endorse in the primary at all. And it would be very hard to overcome that. So I think the, the situation overall is much more ambiguous. But I think there's a broader layer of people who are really excited about Bernie. And I think, at least for me personally, what's so key here is that Bernie's can no longer be considered fringe. And, you know, I, I think many union leaders, I think sometimes, I think partly for good reason, they want to go for the safe option. Who's going to win? Who's going to beat the Republicans? Um, and more and more, you can make the argument that Bernie really is that person. So over that was a complicated answer. But I think overall, it's, yeah, it's a complicated picture. And like I said, so much is tied to the fate of Bernie's campaign overall, because I think you have unions sitting back waiting to see how this plays out. So the more everyone can be doing to building Bernie's campaign, the more likely you have unions jump in if they see him as as the most strong. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, the trade unions in this country are, are joiners, not leaders uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, electoral campaigns. Oftentimes they're not ones to uh, strike out and uh, be it on the, 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 the tip of the spear of a various political movement. They sort of uh, see where which way the winds are blowing and then jump on board after the fact. So I think, you know, I think you point to something that's really important that uh, we all need to be pushing as hard as we can to further this campaign and get people signed up, registered to vote. Those deadlines are coming up in a lot of states. Uh, I mean, it's, it seems like insignificant, but you look at, I mean, the the the, the practical X's and O's of this thing uh, are, are, you know, we're about to reap it, uh, whichever direction. So people want, might want to vote for them. If they're not registered in time, they may not be able to do it. Uh, various little things like that. So one foot in front of the other. And I think that, uh, you know, you're counseling a certain uh, amount of, of, of patience, but also like, hey, the time is now to start acting in other realms. Pardon the interruption, everybody, but this is the part of the program where I ask you to become one of the 400 some odd patrons of DPS Media and become a subscriber today. Dead Planet Society is entirely funded by the generosity of our listeners and supporters. We cannot do this without you. The show may be free to listen to, but it is certainly not free to make. This requires a tremendous amount of hours, the bulk of my week. In fact, I do have some side hustles in order to make ends meet, but in an ideal world, I would be able to dedicate all of my days, all of my week, my entire month, my entire life, folks, to the project of democratic socialism and education and organizing and working towards this transition to a socialist society. But I can't do that without your generous support. I know there are a lot of worthwhile projects out there. It seems like every podcast and every uh, every project out there needs your dollars. Uh, and I'm no different. So if you have learned 
anything at all from DPS, if you are financially able to do so, if you benefit from this show in any way, uh, if you like the politics and you, you'd like to see them thriving and spreading out into the world, uh, help to fund some of my ambitions to do that. Uh, I'd like to do more video. I would like to expand the website. I'd like to do more podcasts. But to be quite honest with you, we have to raise more money in order for me to be able to have the time to do that. So if you like this project and you want to see it grow, head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. Become a patron today. Not only will you support the New Left Agenda, but you will get access to our weekly B-sides as well. And those folks, they're very good. So you're not going to want to miss those. Thanks again, all of the supporters past and present. Back to the interview. And I hate to say it like this, or maybe I don't hate to say it like this, but um, the the more we dilly-dally with Elizabeth Warren, the more it hurts Sanders. And that's uh, just a fact of life. It's not, not anything, I don't know Elizabeth Warren, it's something personal. And I, I tell many people and a lot of teachers, I think you could kind of imagine, like Elizabeth Warren, she kind of has that teacher uh, persona. Yeah. Um, you know, and as I tell people, you know, in any other election, Elizabeth Warren, to me, would be the clear progressive choice. I just don't understand when we have first best in the race, not only in the race, but he's the most viable in the race, why we're not going all in. And, um, you know, now is really the time to go all in and see where it takes us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, after the the second debate there, I felt like the Bernie-Warren uh, combo was a really effective one-two punch. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, but now I think we're getting to the po- to the point where you know uh, Bernie is ready to shed his skin uh, and or, or uh, go into his cocoon and come out a beautiful butterfly and, and leave uh, <laughs> leave his Warren shaped uh, chrysalis behind. You see all these metaphors I'm painting for you here, right. Paul. Uh, yeah. It's time. I think that I think there was a moment there where they did form a, a nice one two punch, but I think it's time for Bernie to 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 strike out on his own. And we can see that Warren is making a number, <laughs> a number of uh, let's just say overtures to the the business crowd inside of the party. We saw that at the uh, the latest convention uh, last weekend, where uh, a number of people in sectors that should have no love for Warren are finding themselves quite enamored with her and. We should be very suspicious of that. In any case, whatever. This isn't about trashing Warren. This is about understanding. I mean, we don't even need to do it. Who cares, right? We don't even need to do that. I think, I think a lot of people waste a lot of time doing that. I don't think we need to do that at all. Uh, the contrasts are crystal clear. Um, are, do you, are you finding that a lot of people in your sector are are kind of getting bamboozled by Warren right now? He, I, I mean, why I worry about it is I say, yeah, a little bit. And, you know, maybe I went say bamboozled but um yes i think they have their reasons right and of course you know this is why you know there's a reason the ruling class controls the media and puts so much into it because it does it matters what they say um and i think a lot of people you know the narrative that well really they're basically the same ideologically a significant number of people are being taken up by that and you know and i what i do try to emphasize to people is that um you know, among the differences, not just ideologically, I mean, she's been waffling on Medicare for all on many occasions, to name just one example. But, you know, again, the, the theory of how change happens, and I think Bernie's approach, again, about a movement is actually more realistic um, 
when you're looking at what we're up against, but also really more in the spirit of the labor movement and what unions, you know, even a union that's not necessarily the most militant in the world, you know, what you have to do just to get a contract, I think is more is in the spirit of the fighting spirit that we know what's going to need to happen. And why I say Warren is less realistic, I think, because the conception that a smart plan is kind of what's going to just convince everyone, just purely the power of ideas, I think, is not really how it's going to play out. It's going to be about, you know, who has more power. And I think going back to the Workplace Democracy Act, I mean, what, what's so impressive to me and I hope to other union members is like what he shows in this is a very detailed understanding of the current problems that unions face, the really practical problems. And I think any real union person should be able to recognize this is not someone just writing a plan that says, you know, unions built the middle class and blah, blah, blah. Like this really goes into the nitty gritty of what we find is holding ourselves back, you know, whether it's the election law, the independent contractors, this is a very nuanced and it really shows like he's one of us by writing a plan like this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Not to mention that uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren crossed the picket line last week, the uh, culinary workers (laughs) action. So like we'd be be remiss in failing to, you know, to, to talk about that. Uh, You know, I care more about your actions than, than your, than your words. And, and 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 her words haven't been fantastic either. You're talking she's walking back Medicare for all. Let's talk a little bit about that. Labor has been really decisive in direct and indirect ways at pushing Medicare for all, despite some of the slanders that have been, you know, parroted on on the debate floors uh, over the past two cycles of debates by by candidates who are, you know, some of whom are, are, aren't even in the race anymore. They were so unpopular. Uh, but as you know, the mainstream media gave them a lot of time and, and put a lot of attention on them during those debates to try to uphold that extreme center, uh, you know, perspective, that extreme centrist perspective of like Delaney and others. Talk to us a little bit about those smears and those slurs. Is Medicare for all generally seen as a threat to the health care that's been hard fought and won uh, by trade union members across the country? So short answer, overall, no. And again, going back to this idea, Sanders campaign, I mean, it's just a, everything about it is agitational and like calling the question. And it, it, to me, it's really great that these talking points about unions came up because it, it now has forced unions to really respond in some way. And, you know, most unions, you know, it's actually kind of a, banal fact by now that the AFL-CIO has for a long time endorsed single-payer health care. Um, and that is the national you know, labor federation of, of this country. And um, they, they reaffirmed that recently. You know, so, I mean, the key thing here is moving beyond passing a resolution to actually devoting political resources to it, which overall they haven't been doing in that strong a way. But it has now forced, you know, Leaders like Sarah Nelson from the flight attendants came out very publicly and said, like, no, you know, Medicare for all would be great for unions. And really any person who has been in the process of trying to get a contract or negotiations will tell you healthcare is the number one thing that is um, a barrier at negotiation. It is always the number one thing. And like people have been saying, um, people have to give up wages, other things just so they can keep good healthcare. Um, and even Randy Weingartner from the AFT did come out and say that, you know, no, Medicare for all is necessary. So many leaders are not really buying this. Um, some others might be staying more quiet, but um, 
And I also think I don't I can't really quantify that this in any statistics, but I think it's forcing more rank and filers who, you know, have not maybe have not been forced to think about this question of like, you know, their healthcare benefits and their and Medicare for all. I think it's forcing them to think about this more. But overall, you know, labor is holding strong to the idea that Medicare for all is necessary. I think the bigger question is are they going to really fight for this in a more robust way? And just to tell a quick personal thing, um, my union, there was a period, almost five years, I wasn't in the union for all of that time, but where the teachers union in Philly was without a contract. And that meant during that time, you know, no one got raises. They were supposed to get, you know, people lost out on a lot during that time. And recently a union staffer told me straight up that the reason we were without a contract was healthcare. Like, that was basically it. And, you know, what the district wanted to us to pay was so ridiculous. And, you know, they couldn't come to agreement. Um, and that's a very common thing. And it's really the trajectory is only going to get worse. It's only going to get harder to keep good health care benefits. Um, and I think more and more unions are going to see that. Yeah. 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 It's nice to see that smear face down. But it also uh, speaks to the way that trade unions have the ability to counter these narratives and then to disseminate that across uh, their wide membership. The, the people that I worry about are the ones who aren't organized. You know, those are the ones I think right. that, you know, how, how do we reach those people? Now, Sarah Nelson can speak from her pulpit as eloquently and as passionately as she does. And she can certainly reach all the flight attendants and she can reach many in the, the radical trade union movement, but who's, who's reaching the people who are sort of stuck in that uh, you know, that quote contractor sector or whatever, you know, they, they may, they may fall for these smears. So I think it's important for us to get that out there far and wide. It's amazing. All of a sudden, how come all of a sudden the Democrats are cared about unions? You know, yeah. yeah. So the one time when it's Medicare for all, that's the first time I heard them really talk about, Oh, well, what will the unions think? So it's, you know, it's obviously a very cynical talking point. Um, but you know, what you just spoke to, the non-organized people. I mean, this is why the overall Bernie campaign is so important. And clearly, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of volunteers. I, I'm sure most of them are not union members. And that's why it's so, uh, his campaign is so important, really, even as political education, to get these ideas out to so many people who may not be in a union or may not be able to get it through the traditional channels. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Talk to us in closing here on the A side. Let's talk a little bit about your role with DSA. Let's, uh, you know, DSA just had a convention last month. There's been a lot of uh, discussion about some peripheral things that went on at that convention. I've, I've said my piece on A and B sides over the past couple of weeks. People can check that out if they want to hear about that. Uh, but moving on to more substantive issues and substantive outcomes. You know, there were a number of labor proposals that were hotly contested, perhaps, perhaps maybe too hotly contested. I think people see that now. They were they were largely more uh, symb- symbiotic than than they were, uh, you know, uh, otherwise. So what what came out of that convention is is, is the national organization committed to not only fighting for Bernie, but also fighting for for labor? Yeah, I mean, and I would say the overall positive is coming out of that, you know, the labor work of DSA has now more, it's going to have more resources devoted to it, which is a need partly because I mean, a lot of our DSA labor members are already so busy in their unions. Um, so they, 
are not able to spend as much time as kind of maybe building the labor side of DSA. Um, so I think that's a positive. And, you know, despite many things at the convention that maybe got on my nerves, uh, I didn't see overall an indication that like average DSA members, you know, were against work and labor or, you know, did not see it that it should be a priority. Um, I think some of these debates on labor did go over many people's heads just because, you know, there'd be no reason for you to know that much about it unless you were already involved in unions. But yeah, I mean, the, the debate centered around, I mean, there were three labor resolutions. Um, so one of them put forward was about um, carrying forward the rank and file strategy. Um, and I mean, depending on who you talk to, they're going to give a different overview. But um, I think it's, this is an attempt to do what socialists really have always been doing, being a part of the labor movement and becoming leaders in it. Um, so the rank and file strategy is basically the idea that current DSA members should be looking in a deliberate way to you know, join existing unions or organize new unions and do it in a kind of focused and coordinated way um, in order to build up the labor movement. But also, you know, this is the idea of like how how would more workers join DSA or be exposed to socialism if we don't have actually human beings talking to them and working with them. So that's what this idea is about. And you know, it has a long history, you know, so many even if you look at the past few decades, recent labor struggles that um, were successful, they did involve socialists. I mean, such as the 1997 UPS strike, the Chicago teacher strike, the LA teacher strike. So it's kind of returning to that and, you know, getting the necessary resources to do that. So like uh, kind of a program for like helping members figure out, well, my, what jobs might they want to do? How can they do this in a group in a more coordinated fashion? So the thing is, that and the other two labor proposals did pass. Um, the other one put forward by the Collective Power Network was not against the rank and file strategy. I think what they tried to formulate was that um, they saw that as being too limiting and that um, it should be maybe a, a broader overall approach and um, working on building up labor branches, whatever form they take throughout DSA. And I think you're right that there pro maybe was too much disagreement leading up to uh, the convention where I don't think they necessarily had to be. I think some people, in my view, unfairly saw the rank and file strategy as saying you can only do that and that's the only thing you can do. I didn't take it that way. And I don't think people who uh, wrote that were saying that if you're a union staffer, you're like the devil or that no one can do that. And the uh, other resolution that passed was around, um, it was framed as organizing the unorganized and that was based off an experience in uh, one DSA chapter where they had worked with a local um, union to organize a certain sector of uh, workers. So I think overall the picture is that, I mean, it wasn't no one strategy really necessarily won out. And I think we'll have an opportunity to explore many different strategies, which I think ultimately is a good thing. There is this kind of tendency I've noticed and it came up in some other resolutions that wound up not getting debated. But I do think there's partly a misunderstanding. There are some DSA members who have this conception that DSA can itself be a union or act like a union. And this is where you sometimes get this idea about um, like DSA will organize the unorganized as if, you know, and that's not to me, that's not something we can really do. Um, we, we're a very different structure than a union. And I don't think we would really have the resources to be able to do that. Um, so, you know, again, overall, I think many DSAs are still learning 
about labor movement, what it really means. I do think it it's being held up as their priority. And we also had Sarah Nelson came to the convention to speak, and she emphasized the importance of labor. And to uh, UTLA, uh, the LA Teachers Union, two of their leaders did come also and speak to us. So I think that is a good dynamic that you know we are associating with labor. They feel that we are at least um, important enough that you know they would want to show up and uh, talk to us. So I hope that the divisions over the labor strategy don't get, I don't think they should last that long. I think we're kind of set up to explore many different options and including trying to get more DSAers to become union members. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, in in some of the divisions that I saw prior to the convention, I mean, they're not in any way exclusive to DSA as an organization. They're just manifestations of like the organic divisions and competing ideologies and strategies inside the, the labor movement as a whole, you know, whether, whether or not, you know, you sort of see yourself aligned with the quote bureaucracy. Of course, now that's a, also a, a, a tented, a certain, it's tented in a certain direction there, even that interpretation or whether or not, you know, you see yourself, uh, you, you see others as potentially uh, being rabble rousers. You know, making making the life of the leadership more difficult than it needs to be. You know, now that also that that interpretation also is slanted in a certain way, right? So these are these are existing, longstanding, um, you know, debates and differences inside the labor movement. So they're by no means you know exclusive to DSA. And I think people may not have the context to understand that because, as you rightly said, I like the way you put that. That that, that you know. DSA members are still learning about labor and what it does and like, you know, and how it works. I think we we do well to study the, the early socialist parties and the German Social Democratic Party where the trade union movement, you know, was a vital, almost separate realm to to the party and the electoral apparatus. And, and, and that's a structural feature under capitalism that 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 that, to be honest, kind of sucks. But but we're stuck with it. So we got to study those lessons to, to A, figure out like how does this work? What are the limitations and the benefits of, of a trade union movement alongside an organized body of people who are working for so, social and political power? And then like how can we overcome some of those limitations? Yeah, and, that, and I think, you know, there, and there's some, some very valid uh, complications or, or criticism. And, uh, you know, speaking as someone who, supports overall this idea of rank and file strategy or labor work. You know, first of all, it's like uh, you, you do have to be smart about it. And there's definitely, I'm sure, plenty of examples of misguided radicals trying to form a caucus in the union and just alienating everybody and not really doing it the right way. And also, you know, we are, it's kind of very interesting, both, you know, DSA locally and uh, nationally, there is kind of this tightrope that has to be walked where, you know, on the one hand, we want to encourage good, you know, uh, well thought out rank and file insurgency. At the same time, like we do work with union leadership in m- many respects, and we have to and should, I think, in many respects. And, you know, we don't want to alienate or um, piss off to some degree people who we think we should be working with. Um, you know, and just we've had some examples of work we've done with uh, local unions on Medicare for all and labor for Bernie, you know, it would be unwise to needlessly alienate people who are doing good work in that arena. So, I mean, I, the, the point I definitely took well from the CPN resolution was, you know, really that 
we should be um, smart about it and um, we should not see it as the end all be all and the thing that's necessarily going to solve every single problem. Um, but what was good in Iraq for our resolution, I think, was that it set us up to have real resources to do it right. Because if you're going to do it, I think, yeah, it, you, you should really think about it. You should have enough people that are supporting each other. So I'm hoping we can get the best of all worlds out of this. But, you know, we'll see. Yeah, for sure. That is the benefit of a big tent organization that you're getting both perspectives because that that risk that you laid out there of people. I don't know. I don't want to ascribe it to certain tendencies. I could. I'll say that for the B side. Uh, <laughs> that's not for mass consumption. Uh, but there are certain tendencies out there that definitely have a legacy of acting pretty recklessly inside of trade union locals and and uh, not thinking very strategically and tactically in terms of how they how they work. And so having sort of quote both sides represented in this debate can sort of bring them together in a more kind of like organic, uh, you know, whole. And, and so that they can, they can, you know, remedy each other's shortcomings, if you will, in that process. Right. So I think, yeah, it's, that was well said. And I think DSA work, you know, the good, the good potential is we, you know, kind of positioned to have a unique contribution to the labor movement. And what I mean to that is through med- the Medicare for all campaign, again, most unions formally supported, but, you know, we could kind of, bring more energy to that side of it and really bring it to life in unions. And I think it's kind of like a potential unique value added that we can be a part of. Yeah, for sure. It's harding to see uh, not only Bernie, but labor for Bernie really take the front seat, you know, in terms of uh, driving the the activity and the, the, the thinking really of the organization, the way that it has. Um, in closing here, talk to us a little bit about, the DSLC, that's Democratic Socialist Labor Commission, coming out of convention. What kind of plans do you all have? You've got a staffer now, so you have more resources at your disposal. Uh, what are going to be some of your priorities going into the next couple of years? Yeah. Um, so on, on the kind of the most basic level is just building up more local labor committees where we don't have them. There's still you know many chapters that really have not um, developed them. And this is where I th- the potential of a staffer is great that can really go to people in person, um, meet with them, talk to them about how to develop. You know, Labor for Bernie is one of our um, priorities um, and helping to build that up. And I think through that process, you know, could grow our labor committees. And um, I've had some daydreams about doing stuff like, you know, public forums about postal banking with, uh, you know, Postal Workers Union locals and bringing Bernie in, stuff like that, I think could could potentially go to the next level. And I think continuing, I, like we, to me, we really need to ratchet up, up this Medicare for all work and move it beyond the resolution to really getting people in locals, you know, educating members about it, getting them out to canvases, trying to move whatever it's city council or state legislator res- resolutions on it. Um, so really bringing it to life in the labor movement. And then with the, the rank and file work, really, again, having an organized way of really recruiting our members and, or at least making it known as an option that, you know, taking on a union job and doing socialist work and labor work in that forum is a really good option and providing them the resources to do it. So yeah, there's definitely a lot coming down the pipe and I think we're set up to do it um, in a much better way. Right on. I think that direction is about as good as anybody could have hoped for at this point in the game. And Green New Deal. That's a, uh, Another huge bear to tackle. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, oof, yeah. Green New Deal and labor. 
that's that's a whole another yeah. episode, my friend. Uh, right. I've got a couple of Green New Deal episodes coming down the pike here. Um, I've done a, I've done a few of those, but um, Bernie's put out a plan, and uh, a couple other people are acting and, and making various statements in certain directions. And um, man, that's that's a big topic, but uh, lots to talk about. You brought up postal banking, which is going to carry us into our B side today. You wrote a piece for Jacobin in early July called "Defend the Post Office, Defend Black Workers." And uh, it really touches on everything that we've talked about so far, but we're going to get at at those aspects much, much more explicitly because we would be remiss in failing to talk about what uh, others, and I think Carl Bear has called the quiet death of the white Bernie bro attack. In uh, the way that, that this is yet another way that uh, that Bernie is showing his legitimacy. Uh, because these smears just don't work anymore. The fact that, as you've mentioned over and over again, rightly so, that he's not electable. People don't believe that anymore. That he's not a serious politician. People don't believe that anymore. You look at him on, on the debate stage. He's like an elder statesman, for fuck's sake. I mean, it's crazy, right? Uh, he has the just, I mean, he just has a presence about him that just speaks to legitimacy and authenticity. And, uh, and, and another one here is like, you know, you say, uh, the white Bernie bro attack, the fact that uh, he cannot possibly uh, garner support from a diverse you know, electorate. Uh, a recent polls by Pew confirm that only 49% of Sanders supporters are white. And that's, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's compared to 56% of Biden voters, 59% of Kamala Harris voters, and a remarkable 71% of Warren voters who are white. So Sanders is scoring quite high in terms of getting support from racialized people across this country. And it's not for nothing. We're going to talk about why that is the case um, in the coming B-side. So uh, everybody, uh, check out patreon.com slash pundits. Become a subscriber of DPS Media today in order to hear the entirety of that episode. If not, you're just going to get a little teaser. We're going to save the juicy stuff for the patrons. So everybody tune into that. Paul Prescott, thanks again. Philadelphia educator, member of that uh, caucus of working educators, also on the steering committee of National DSA Labor Committee. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.